Welcome to the San Diego News Fix Name Drop Edition, where we highlight amazing people in, around, and from San Diego. I'm Christy Totten. My guest this week is Justin Brooks. He's the director and co-founder of the California Innocence Project. The Innocence Project provides free legal services to the wrongfully convicted. It was founded in 1999 at the California Western School of Law here in San Diego, and it's freed many people from prison, as well as trained hundreds of law students. Brooks is the author of the upcoming book, You Might Go to Prison Even If You're Innocent, which comes out in April 2023. One of his cases is also portrayed in the feature-length film, Brian Banks, about a high school football star whose NFL dreams are dashed by a false conviction. In this interview, Justin shares the origins of the California Innocence Project. We talk about problems with the justice system, about his new book, and more. Here's our conversation. Uh, Well, Justin, thanks so much for being here. How are you? You have written a book that's coming out pretty soon called You Might Go to Prison Even If You're Innocent. How are things going with that? Going great. Uh, It's a book that was basically 32 years in the making that kind of looks back over the cases I've done in my career. And I, I, I sat down to think about how I could sort of subdivide all the causes of wrongful conviction that I've seen in my career of of investigating innocence cases and getting people out of prison. Mm, Yeah, I mean, so this project, the California Innocence Project, actually started with a case in Chicago. Could you tell us a little more about that? Sure, so in uh, 1995, I was a law professor in Michigan and I read about a woman on death row in Illinois and the article said that she was sentenced to death on a plea bargain. And that was a fairly upsetting sentence to read. Uh, and so I set up a meeting with her on death row. And she told me she would pled out, but she was actually innocent. And so I said, you're innocent, but you pled guilty. And now you've got a death date. Yes. So I went back to the law school where I was teaching and I told my students exactly that. There's a woman on death row. She says she's innocent. She's scheduled to be executed. Who wants to help me out looking into this case? And that night, uh, the Innocence Project uh, for me was born where we sat around my kitchen table and started going through the police reports and went out to the crime scene. And we very quickly learned that she was factually innocent, that the evidence against her was completely false. In fact, on the first day of investigating the case, we went to the crime scene and realized that the only eyewitness was lying because it was impossible to see the crime scene from her apartment where she claimed she saw it from. It was more than 400 feet away. It was at midnight. It was pitch black. Uh, There's no lighting. And we later found out that she fabricated her testimony because she was the girlfriend of one of the victims of a shooting. So the one person in the city of Chicago who said they looked out their window and saw this shooting also coincidentally was a girlfriend of one of the victims. Hmm. I think what's so upsetting about your work is that it's not uncommon. These wrongful convictions are not uncommon. Uh, What are some of the reasons they occur? So what you're saying is exactly the reason I wrote this book. Um, I think, you know, no one wants to accept the fact that they can be wrongfully convicted because then you've got to accept the fact that you could be wrongfully convicted. 
And I can tell you, even as a lawyer, after all the years of doing this work, I believe it could happen to me. And I, and so much so that I literally have in my head a plan for my first day in prison, which is, you know, go out on the yard and, and talk to all the leaders of the gangs and tell them, look, I'll be your personal lawyer as long as you keep everyone away from me. I'll, I'll sit in the library diligently working on your case. So, uh, so my book really looks at that. And each chapter is designed around that concept of, here's all the different ways it can happen to you. So for example, I look at the high incidence of wrongful convictions in rural areas in California, where I've seen just like really bad police work, where in under-policed communities, we have situations like our client, Bill Richards, who came home and found his wife beaten to death in San Bernardino, where the police just didn't know how to process a homicide scene. So they did no time of death analysis and none of the evidence was preserved. So it was very difficult for him to launch a defense. And yet we see the opposite problem happening in urban California and around the world where there's over-policing and people get caught up in crimes they didn't commit because there's this sort of mentality of rounding up a bunch of people maybe on a street corner who may or may not be involved in drug sales and the over-policing of communities can cause wrongful convictions. And, and then I look at things like we've learned over the past three decades that bad identifications is the leading cause of wrongful convictions in America. And it's as simple as people don't have good memories. And I always use the example of, I'll say to an audience or to a, to a jury, you know, have you ever been in a restaurant and you look right at the waiter and you order your food and then a few minutes later you change your mind and you decide, no, I'm gonna have the tomato soup instead of the potato soup. And you look up and you don't remember who your waiter was. And that's the best possible identification situation from memory. It's just moments later, bright light, you're looking the person in the face. When we look at crime situations, there, people are focused not on people's faces, but they're focused on weapons. They're frightened, which distorts memory. They often, witnesses will talk to each other and distort each other's memories. Identifications are sometimes made days later, weeks later, months later, and I've even seen cases of years later. And yet if it, someone walks in a courtroom and points at you and says, that's the person who committed the crime, you will get convicted. Like you can be convicted on that alone. And for that reason, literally anybody can be picked out. And, and that chapter in my book is called, you look like other people in the world. Right. <laughs> which we all do to a certain extent. And, and, a, and a subtopic of that I get into in detail is we are particularly bad at identifying people not of our own race. Um, Cross-racial identifications is one of the leading causes of wrongful convictions. It's almost like a coin toss when you see it happen. And I think when, you know, we're never comfortable talking about race in our society, but this is a topic that doesn't have to do with racism. It has to do fundamentally with exposure and that in the first four years of your life, you develop your facial recognition software. And if mom is white and dad is white and your brothers are white and your sister's white and everyone's white around you, you're not going to be good at identifying people of color for the rest of your life. Now you can make up some ground by exposure, but, and, and so this affects everyone. Um, because everyone, you know, is of one race identifying of other races. So we see it with white people identifying Latino people, Latino people with black people, black people with Asian people. 
Uh, I've walked personally six people out of prison who are innocent, who are convicted on cross-racial identifications. So these are, it's just, my book is filled with a lot of stuff I think people don't think about that can lead you to be wrongfully convicted. Yeah, I mean, so because those problems exist, why are they still used, you know, by the system to convict people? And has there been any improvement, any changes uh, in, in the way the system works? There has been improvement, so I'm, I'm hopeful about it. Uh, for instance, we've been fighting this identification issue in California for decades. Um, we got San Diego to change their procedures years ago, but we could never get Los Angeles, the largest county in the United States, to change the way they were doing ID procedures, even though all of their techniques were shown to be flawed, including using six-pack photo arrays, which we know will lead a person to the person who looks most like the person. We know that the officer shouldn't be present who knows who the suspect is because they're horrible poker players and they always have tells. So we finally got the legislature to pass uh, new laws mandating that the police departments in California start using best practices for identifications. But it doesn't get rid of the problem, right? I mean, we can do a lot better. We can make our identifications better. Um, we can do better with false confessions, which is another leading cause of wrongful conviction by just simply recording the confessions. So the jury can really see what happened in that process. Uh, you know, was this person badgered? Were they lied to? Um, did they really understand what was going on? Uh, were they having a blackout at the time of the crime and now the police are just filling their memory in with stuff that's not there? So we can do a lot of things to improve it. And, and one of the chapters in, in my book is called, You Got a Jury That Was Blinded by Science. And I get into all the junk science we've learned about in the past few decades. And we certainly are getting better every day at improving scientific techniques with forensics, but there's still a lot of places where they use junk science. But the, the chapter I left to last is the most challenging in my book, and that is race and poverty. Um, which is so difficult to tackle in the criminal legal system, because in my work, it's never the actual issue I can bring up to get a conviction reversed, unless there's blatant racism going on in a case, which is very hard to document from a cold record. Uh, it's very hard to show how race impacted the case, even though we know when we take a 10,000 foot view of it, that it's the thing that most permeates our criminal legal system. Um, we know that the number one reason to get the death penalty in America not is because you did the most heinous crime, but it's based on the race of the victim. It's almost always white victims where the death penalty is given. Uh, there's been studies that have shown by using virtual reality that when they show trials to jurors and they just change the race of the defendant, that they come out with different verdicts. And they come out with different sentences. So the, the racism and bias that exists in our society exists in our criminal legal system because it's just a microcosm of it. It's just a bunch of people who every day file into a courthouse and get picked for jury duty or are serving as judges and as lawyers. And I think that's the biggest challenge we have because you can't just pinpoint it exactly and pin it down and come up with specific remedies. So, um, so we can certainly do better. And that's a, 
I try not to be overly cynical and my, my book is about change and what we can do to improve things. But, but some of these are very tough things to change. Uh, well, you've covered or you've, you've represented so many cases, uh, you know, over 2,500 cases of wrongful conviction. Uh, you've actually had a movie made about one of your cases, Brian, Brian Banks. Um, could, could you highlight, you know, just just a couple of, of the stories you, you like to tell that, that really show the extent of this problem? Sure. So I haven't personally had 2,500 cases go to trial, but what I have done is we look at thousands of cases a year in my office and review them and investigate them. And then we pick out the cases where we believe we can win and we go forward and litigate them. And it's not just me at the California Innocence Project. I've got a team of 10 great lawyers who are all my former students. And then I've got a team of volunteer lawyers. Um, you know, some of the more shocking ones that we can learn from. One that always sticks out in my head is Mike Hanline, who spent 36 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And Mike's case um, was just so permeated with corruption. It was just, it, it really shocked my conscience to see that this guy was set up by everybody. And it was a case in Ventura County from the 1970s. And his initial letter to me said, I didn't do this murder. A lawyer involved in the case did the murder. And I thought, okay, that's you know just crazy stuff people write from prison that you often get. But it just so happened a friend of mine who was a well-respected attorney worked in that law office with that lawyer when he was in law school. So I called him up and I said, I got this letter, this crazy letter that said your old boss might have done this murder. And he said, oh yeah, I could see that. <laughs> And I said, what? Oh my God. Said, yeah, he was dealing drugs out of the office. He was running with gangs. Um, that's why I quit. And I said, oh my God. So we start looking into this case and the entire record had been sealed. And it took us two years in federal court just to unseal the records. And we found so much corruption involved in this case where um, our client had just been railroaded by everybody involved in it. Uh, so much so that the county ended up, you know, not only exonerating him, but giving him a very big settlement financially to make this thing go away. And, um, you know, that that case really stuck with me because 36 years in prison, and it was the most in the history of California that someone had been wrongfully convicted at that time and, and been released. And his wife, by the way, waited for him to come home. They'd been married Wow. Two years, and uh, she was standing with me by the jail door, waiting for him to walk out. So that's just one of those memories that you know never goes away. Mm -hmm. And then there's, okay. and then I'm just gonna say there's the cases that I highlight in the book that show again, that go against the grain of a lot of the stereotypes. A lot of the stereotypes are. This is what happens to poor people of color in in the inner city. And it's absolutely true, as I said, race permeates the system, that that is often the case. And statistically, it's way more often the case than otherwise. But then we have cases like Kimberly Long, who's a white middle-class nurse who comes home one day and finds her boyfriend beaten to death. And she had the unfortunate situation that earlier in the day, she got an argument with him in public. And so she became immediately the suspect. And there were so many things that were missed in that case that were clear that she was innocent and other suspects that should have been looked at. But it's always interesting to me when Kim speaks at an event because it seems to move people in a very different way 
particularly when the audience is filled with a lot of white people, a lot of middle-class people who look at her and think, how did she spend seven years in prison? She looks like my daughter. She looks like my wife. That's not what I have in my mind about people who go to prison. And so it, she, her, it always seems so much more impactful to people, even though I have clients who've, like Tim Atkins, who was an 18-year-old Black kid in Los Angeles who just got completely railroaded and spent 23 years in prison. When I have him speak at events, it's, it's interesting because I think people think like a lot of them, well, okay, yeah, he kind of fits the profile. You know, he was, he was affiliated with a gang and he's this young Black kid from inner city. So that doesn't really impact me and my life and what might happen to me or my children or my family. So it's, it's an interesting life and going case by case and seeing how people's reactions are to them. Yeah, I mean, how do you combat that bias? I know that it's not an easy problem to solve, but you know, in, in the courtroom or you know, in the, in the public courtroom, um, it's, it's something we face. I mean, I don't think we can ever eliminate bias, you know, because bias, it, you know, bias, we need bias, for example, to even open a doorknob. You know, it's, it's based on all our prior experience turning doorknobs, it creates the bias that teaches us how to turn doorknobs. So there's that sort of bias that builds into human experience, but then there's this evil side of bias where we end up making assumptions and prejudice and, and all based on our life experience. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of hope in this generation that they're going to do a better job. I mean, I, I used to represent protesters in DC 30 years ago, and I would be out at these protests and you'd only ever see a handful of people at most of them. And, you know, I was out there with the divest South African, in, you know, investments with about 12 other people in the rain in 1987. And now when I see you know, millions of young white kids out on the streets protesting for Black Lives Matter. That's something we haven't seen ever. I mean, if you look at the big protests in this country, like the Vietnam War, that was because people were getting drafted and there were middle class and white people and kids getting drafted. They had an immediate interest in it. And when you've looked at the biggest protests in DC, a lot of them have been around abortion where this has this immediate impact on a huge portion of our population, 50% of it, of an immediate impact. Um, we haven't seen people going out for criminal justice. And I'm seeing that change in my law students. You know, I'm teaching first year criminal law this semester and I, it just seems to be a different conversation that we're having. Whereas in the past, I hear a lot of, how could you ever represent guilty people? Now I'm hearing a lot more of, you know, how can we make the, the legal system better and, and put more justice into it? So I think we can improve, but I think we always have to remember we're human beings, we're faulty, and that's why we have to get rid of things like the death penalty. We just don't have the capacity to give out a sanction like that. We're too imperfect to give out the ultimate sanction. That's the bottom line. It's not whether people deserve to die, it's whether we deserve to kill. And we don't deserve to kill with an imperfect system. We've walked nearly 200 people now off death row, which means those mistakes have been made many, many, many times. 
Yeah, that's terrifying to think about. Um, how do you go about vetting and, and choosing the cases you take on? I know that you get thousands of letters. I'm sure that all of them are not truthful, you know. So, so how do you how do you go about that? Yeah, that's the biggest part of our job, really. And it took me years to put together a system that I, I it's not perfect for sure, but it's a way that we can vet cases and focus on ones where we've got a chance at winning. So I have a huge team of law students and volunteer lawyers. And every day, you know, they're going through the mail that comes in. They send out questionnaires to the uh, inmates. So we get all the information on their case. My students will read the appellant briefs in the case and assess the case and then write up an intake memo. And then twice a week, we have presentations on cases and I have the awful Caesar-like power of thumbs up or thumbs down as to whether a case is going to proceed. And sadly, most cases fall away um, because even though they may very well be innocent, we know from experience that it's not going to be possible to win the case. That we won't be able to develop the kind of evidence we'll need. And we're the last stop after they've lost their trial, lost their appeals, and the only way we can reopen a case is if we have new evidence of innocence. And it, that's rare that we can actually develop that. So the cases where we think we can develop it, where we got a chance, where there could be some new science that's going to prove innocence, or there's a possibility of finding DNA, or there's witness recantations that we think are credible, those cases we push forward and, and get into litigation. And you know we've walked now 37 innocent people out of prison from our office here in San Diego. And uh, over the last 23 years that I've been running the California Innocence Project, I've also sat on the national board and we've developed um, now 70 projects in the United States. And out of our office in San Diego, we coordinate 32 innocence organizations in Latin America. And so we have projects in Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Ecuador, and so it's been crazy. We, it's been, you know, a more of a movement that feels like we're part of. And in that time, we've seen, you know, more than 3,000 exonerations. And uh, so it's so different than 30 years ago when we were arguing about whether there were innocent people in prison. Now it's really about, you know, who are the innocent people in prison and what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, doing this work and trying not to be cynical. That seems like a big job in and of itself. Mm -hmm. How how do you go about that? Well, it starts with I have a great team. I think if I was doing this alone, I would have quit a long time ago. I mean, the last thirty two years as a criminal defense attorney is an accomplishment, and it, it's it's hard because you. You know, I, I don't sleep well. I haven't slept well since I started doing criminal work. Uh, you losing cases, losing innocence cases is very hard. Uh, and it's funny because I always, it, when I'm giving a speech, I'll always ask the audience, what do you think is harder, representing an innocent person or a guilty person? And most of the general public thinks representing guilty people is harder. Any lawyer will tell you representing innocent people is harder. Because representing a guilty person, your job is just to go in, make sure the prosecution proves their case. And if they do, argue for the best sentence you can get. And then you move on. And I did that as, as a young lawyer. I just did regular criminal defense work. And I'm like, okay, you know, the evidence was against us. This wasn't a winnable case. I did my best. I move on. But when you lose an innocence case, 
you can't, you definitely blame yourself because it's what else could I have done? Well, how could I have won this case? Because it's so wrong that an innocent person gets convicted and then that we can't reverse the conviction. So when we lose a case in our office, when we've litigated it, it's hard. I mean, everyone in the office cries, everybody goes home and we get up the next day and start again. Mm. Um, so, you know, I've got good things in my personal life that I've kept mentally healthy. I don't read I don't read anything about criminal law except my own cases. I don't watch TV shows about criminal law. I've never seen CSI. I've never seen <laughs> Law and Order. I watch HGTV and terrible reality shows. Uh, I live down on the beach, which helps a lot. I've got a beautiful grandson that I play with in the morning before I go to work. <laughs> uh, I try to exercise every day. I mean, all those things to try to keep good perspective and, um, and be hopeful that that we're making a difference uh that you know things will get better and, and the other part of it is my office works on policy so it's we're not just always mopping up and we've been able to change laws in california we we pushed for new evidence standard in california that's now the law uh, we worked on the the laws for um, access to dna testing uh, we got law passed for compensation for people who have been wrongfully convicted so we, we've been doing a lot of systemic change and that makes you feel more hopeful. Like, okay, there's progress, there's progress. We're not just mopping up mistakes at the end. We're trying to stop them from happening in the front end. Yeah, um, so something I like to ask people in these interviews is uh, who would play you in your biopic, but you actually have an answer to that. I think that you're the only guest I've ever had on the show that has been played by a famous actor. How did you feel about that casting and and how involved were you in that in that movie process? Uh, I was deeply involved in the movie process more than so deeply involved. I don't know if I'd do it again, but <laughs> it's very important to get it right. So my client, Brian Banks, who was one of the best football players in the country in high school was falsely accused of rape by a classmate. And he lost his opportunity to go to USC on a full scholarship. And everyone said he was going to the NFL and instead he went to prison. And then years later, the alleged victim came forward, actually Facebook friend requested him and said this, you know, can we let bygones be bygones? I'm sorry about that stuff I made up in high school about you raping me. So Brian ended up getting exonerated. Um, we worked on his case for a long time. He then actually lived with my family for a while. And he then tried out for the NFL and made it onto the Atlanta Falcons for a period of time. So this was truly a story that Hollywood loved. It had criminal justice, it had football, it had redemption, it had all these themes that resonate in Hollywood. So uh, a lot of Hollywood people reached out to me after his exoneration. And, and Brian and I talked about it a lot and decided we would try push to get a movie made, not about football, but about the criminal justice system and about how he ended up being wrongfully convicted and going to prison. And uh, it was a crazy eight year process getting the movie made. I was involved with the casting. Uh, I won't name some of the actors that were suggested to play me, but I was just- <laughs> Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> Some were just too good looking, like Brad Pitt. I said, I don't <laughs> want to be showing up at a premiere. And they're like, this guy's not Brad Pitt. Uh, and so I was very, very happy um, with ultimately the way it came together and uh, had Academy Award nominated actor Greg Kinnear play me. Greg's a great guy. Uh, 
He came to the law school. He sat in my classroom. He sat in on our case presentations. And according to my wife, he picked up a lot of little nuances that I do that I wasn't aware of. Such and, as? <laughs> well, when I'm when someone's presenting something to me that is difficult, I didn't know before that I closed my eyes while I was listening. So if we're, a case is being presented and I just can't see the right answer, I literally close my eyes while I'm thinking about it. Like Interesting. Craig started doing it in the movie. I'm like, do I do that? Evidently I do. And, uh, but it was surreal, really surreal. He was wearing my ties. He was driving my Jeep. He was sitting at a desk that had all the same knickknacks that are on my desk. If you haven't experienced that in life, it's really odd. Yeah, that sounds like it. Um, let's see, Justin, how can people get involved? You know, as you said, this is a systematic issue. This is an ongoing issue. It feels more like a movement than it does a job. A lot of the time, you know, what, how can everyday people help? Well, first of all, we need funding to do our work, even though most of the people who work in this area are volunteers and I get paid by the law school and don't take a salary from the California Innocence Project. We need just simple as like gas money driving around the state doing investigations and getting expert witnesses and getting DNA testing done. So people can go to CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org and make a donation. We also do have volunteers who volunteer in our office. And there's also, you know, projects all over the country that do the same kind of work. And they can learn more about the work by buying my book and reading it, which is now available uh, for pre-order on Amazon.com. And so it's You Might Go to Prison Even Though You're Innocent. And if they've got Hulu, they can watch the Brian Banks movie because it's still available on Hulu. Awesome. I will be doing that. Well, Justin Brooks, thank you so much for this information. Um, thanks for the important work you do. And yeah, just best of luck. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me to come on.